Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Michelle Flanagan. Uh, she's an assistant professor, part of the Plant Sciences and Plant Pathology Department uh, in Montana. Yeah. And we're gonna, she has her own lab as well. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, her research. So, Michelle, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It looks like you're, you're focused on, uh, on honeybees and their biology, or is it more molecular mechanisms of you know, host-pathogen interactions, or is it host-pathogen in relation to honeybees only? Yeah, so research in my lab at Montana State University is primarily focused on understanding the impact of viruses on honeybees at the colony level, so the superorganism level, the individual bee level, and also at the cellular level. So as you mentioned, we do investigate the molecular mechanisms that bees have evolved to combat viral infections. And then in addition, I consider that our lab works on just agriculturally important hosts in general. We also have another project investigating the impact of potato virus Y on potato plants as well. But my background and training is primarily virology, and I'm a microbiologist and virologist by training. So host pathogen interactions are our main focus. Are you studying the, uh, the microbiome of bees at all, or are you focused just on the, uh, the viruses that affect them? Right. So we've done a little work on the microbiome. One of the people that studies the microbiome the most in honeybees is Nancy Moran's group, but we primarily study the pathogenome, if you will. And so a lot of our longitudinal monitoring projects that involved, you know, several colonies that we look at what pathogens are associated with the bees over time, we detect where we look for 16 pathogens, and then we look at their prevalence and abundance over time. So we look at several microorganisms and viruses that are associated with with bees, but we don't focus on their microbiome, which is primarily located in the gut of the bee, and actually pretty stable if you compare the honeybee to other organisms. They have a pretty stable and not that diverse of a, a microbial community that inhabits the gut, but it's a very interesting area of research, but not our main focus. The viruses that affect bees, do they come from in like varroa mites? Do they just come from the plants that bees pollinate? Like how do bees, you know, uh, get these viruses and you know, what, are, what are some of the mechanisms by which they get sick and when do they get sick? Yeah, so those are good questions. So the major category of honeybee infecting viruses are a class of viruses that we call positive sense single-stranded RNA viruses. So they're, meaning their genome is, is made of RNA not unlike the SARS coronavirus genome that we all know a lot about these days. But bees get viruses much like humans do. So you can either have vertical transmission, and that means from parents to offspring, or you can have what we call horizontal transmission, meaning the, if a bee is infected and visits a flower and then you know deposits some of those viruses on that floral resource, and then a second bee visits, they can also contact and be infected with that virus. 
I think you've done several uh, podcasts on bees now and that you recognize that bees live in these colonies of about 30,000 individuals. So they're always um, experiencing a lot of contact. So virus transmission is really great in bee colonies. They're constantly touching each other, grooming each other. And when they go and forage and obtain nectar and come back, they actually feed that nectar into the house bee and that they go into the honey stomach of the bee. And it, so they're doing this, what we call mouth-to-mouth feeding or trophallaxis. So of course, that's Ooh. another great way to spread viruses. And so both horizontal and vertical transmission and flowers can be a, a site where bees can transmit viruses. Okay, interesting. Since bees are, I mean, they're all bees, but they have different phenotype. Like how does, does a virus that affects bees affect the queen more than the workers or the drones more than this or you know is there any protection because uh, i would guess that the different types of bees within a colony are hopefully different enough that maybe they wouldn't be affected by a virus when others would right so your question is a good one how are the different casts of bees impacted by viruses um, I would say more than the cast, probably the age of the bee matters. Newly emerging bees versus foragers. Foraging bees are more exposed to viral infections. Another uh, cool thing about bee colonies is they're an outbred population. So the queen mates with multiple drones. Um, and then, so thus the bees in the box, which are primarily sterile female workers, are a hybrid population. So they don't all have the same genetics, which may offer them some kind of protection against the viruses. You can imagine some families are being hit harder by SARS coronavirus than others. And is that due to maybe the host genetics themselves? You know, questions we don't really have a great answer for, for either humans or honeybees. But, you know, we we have detected viruses in drones, which are male bees. Queens also can be infected with viruses and workers as well and larvae. And so we don't really see major differences in the outcome of viral infection, but age is a big component. So, for example, if a larva is infected with deformed wing virus at high levels, that larva may emerge with wings that are deformed, and that's how the virus got its name. But deformed wing virus is also detected in worker bees that have perfectly well-formed wings. And so they likely got that virus infection after development, and thus they're still sick with deformed wing virus, or they still have deformed wing virus replicating in them, but they don't have that deformed wing virus phenotype. So age probably matters more than bee cast in terms of viral infection. Well, what's the average lifespan of the different types of bees in a colony, the different types of honeybees? Yeah, that's a very good question. So queen bees can live several years. Worker bees, um, and this is very interesting, They their lifespan depends on if you live in a temperate environment, or maybe some people wouldn't consider Montana a temperate environment, but we have bees that emerge during only the summer months here. And if a bee emerges during the summer months, let's call that Um, May, June, July, August, those bees will live, worker bees will live about six weeks. But later in the fall, the bees that emerge then, they're going to have to overwinter inside the colony. So those worker bees will live on the order of four or five months. And so actually, and this is what I tell student groups, that the age or the, the length of life for a bee depends on when she was born. 
Now drones or male bees are only in the colony in the uh, spring and summer. So males uh, emerge from unfertilized eggs. Males are haploid individuals. And there, there are about hundreds of them in a colony that has around 30,000 bees. And they're again, only there in summer. And so at the end of the summer, they'll be kicked out of the colony and die. And so males only live a, a few months. Well, given that there's a latency period of, you know, first infection to symptomatic problems, maybe a strategy with bee viruses is to, if you know, if the period of time can be extended, the latency period, or if a certain virus can be coerced somehow to, uh, to go latent for a period of time, maybe that would be plenty enough for the bee to live through its natural life cycle and then not be affected. Yeah, that's a good question. So typically when we talk about latent virus, we're talking about double-stranded DNA viruses, like the herpes virus, for example, in humans. And that will go latent, meaning no genes of that viral genome are expressed or turned on, or it's really just kind of sitting there. Um, But RNA viruses typically replicate and divide and infect all the time. They typically don't go latent, although you can have persistent infections with RNA viruses in which there's some kind of balance between the host and the virus. They've co-evolved long enough where um, the virus is an obligate intracellular pathogen, replicates in the cells, spreads a bit, but doesn't cause you know, overt harm to the bee. Um, we'll read a lot in about bee viruses that said, you know, looks at symptomatic or overt infection versus asymptomatic infections. You know, you can envision that's pretty hard to detect in honeybees unless they have things like deformed wings or paralysis, these major symptoms. But what our lab and several other labs have shown as well is that bees that are infected with viruses have a perturbation in the genes that are important for metabolic processes. And even in so-called asymptomatic bees, we detect over a billion copies of the RNA viruses per bee. And so uh, we hypothesize that they're at least energetically taxing on the host, even if you don't see those overt symptoms like deformed wings or paralysis. Interesting. So what are some of the main viruses that, that adversely affect bees? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, so a a few of them, one I've mentioned already is deformed wing virus, longitudinal monitoring of honeybee colonies throughout the year. We, when we talk about honeybee colony losses and they've averaged close to 38% annually in the US for the last 10 years, typically those losses occur over winter, meaning the time when the colonies are kind of stressed due to cold temperature. And in general, um, high abundance of deformed wing virus infection in the fall, coupled with infestation of this varroa destructor mite. Um, This is a parasitic mite that crawls around on the bees and parasitizes the larva. And as you mentioned, also vectors or transmits several of these RNA viruses. 
those two factors coupled together at high levels in the fall typically result in high colony losses. Um, we've also seen ill effects of this virus that uh, we co-discovered, the Lake Sinai virus group, and in specific Lake Sinai virus 2. We've seen that when Lake Sinai virus 2 abundance is high, colony health and how we typically measure colony health when we're doing these studies in collaboration with beekeepers is we use colony population size as a proxy for colony health. So we found that high abundance of Lake Sinai virus 2 um, correlates with low numbers of bees in the colony and so likely has some adverse effects to the colony as a whole. Um, and so then other viruses, I, so I mentioned paralytic viruses, and those include Israeli acute paralysis virus. There are chronic bee paralysis virus, black queen cell virus, and sac brood virus, just to name a few. We know probably close to somewhere like 30 bee viruses, and we and others are doing um, next generation sequencing projects where we're continuously identifying new viruses that are associated with bee samples because they're organisms that we just haven't looked in as much depth as we've looked at in, for example, humans and even bats, for example. These viruses, uh, do they, when do they strike bees? Do they strike them while they're in hibernation before the season starts? Or do they tend to happen more when they're out and about pollinating? Like, when does it affect them, these different ones? Right. So in general, when we do our experiments, we bring frames of bees that will then emerge or um, chew their way out of their cell when as they finish development and they emerge as a full adult bee. We bring those bees into the lab and in general, they have less virus infection right when they emerge from the cell because they have contacted little of their uh, colony mates. And so they haven't been exposed to viruses yet. Of course, as I mentioned before, that might parasitize as larvae. So they certainly could have been um, infected as a larva and a pupa. Again, the queen can also lay an egg or the sperm can be contaminated as well with viruses. So developing bees can have viruses, but in general, we found that they have less viruses. Whereas foragers who are out and about and foraging on nectar and gathering pollen, they tend to have higher loads of viral infection and a more diverse viral infection profile. We've been involved in several longitudinal monitoring studies at the colony level where we take samples of bees every month for the course of the whole year. We find viruses all year long, but the pattern of their prevalence and abundance varies over time. And also in different studies, in different years, in different geographies, we don't always see a consistent pattern of viral infections. We in general, see higher abundance of Lake Sinai viruses in the spring and winter in some cases. And again, as I mentioned, higher viruses of deformed wing in the fall. But there isn't, you know, the flu season, for example, of honeybees with all these different viruses that infect them hasn't been well characterized. And I wouldn't expect it to be universal in all parts of the globe. I would think there are colonies of wild honeybees. Has anyone tried to go out and get any and look at their viral load? I would think there would be a trade-off. You know, the foragers would have higher viral load, but they probably would be less affected by the viruses, is my guess. Yeah, and the so, ones that hang out at the hive don't get that exposure as much except secondhand from the, you know, the foragers. And I don't know, what, what do you see there? What's the dynamic? Yeah, so mites stay in the colony and mites are a major viral vector. So the ones that are staying at home are certainly um, exposed to viruses as well. 
you mentioned wild bees and in the U.S. honeybees, Apis mellifera are non-native bee species. They were brought over with the colonists in the late 1600s. So they've been in North America since the 1600s. And so there are wild bee colonies in the sense that they're kind of feral colonies. They've gone out, they've nested in cavities and trees. Dr. Tom Seeley uh, studies them a lot in the Arno Forest in New York. These bee trees that have colonies that haven't been um, impacted by management from beekeepers. But, you know, here in Montana, what we often see is some of these bee colonies are just recent escapees from a managed operation or they've of recent swarms and swarm is how the colony reproduces. So one colony that gets too crowded will send the old queen and about half the population off in a swarm and they'll establish a new colony. But it could have been just a month ago that they were under management from a beekeeping operation. But we would still call that a wild colony or a feral colony because it's out and about. Researchers have begun to look at viral infection in these wild colonies are not managed colonies. And then there are also beekeepers who use less treatments or less are less involved in the management. And so people have looked at that too. Um, Margarita Lopez Uribe at Penn State has been doing some quantification of uh, viruses in differentially managed colonies. And Tom Seeley also has some work on that. But in general, both managed honeybee colonies and feral or wild honeybee colonies that are sampled in the environment both have viral infections. About every organism you can think of is infected with a virus and virus infections are normal. And most of the time we call, it could be an acute virus infection that they'll clear, kind of like when we get a common cold virus or the rhinovirus. In just a few weeks, we'll clear that virus and we'll be totally fine. But if you tested us, we would test positive, of course. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Right, but we wouldn't have any ill effect. So when some of these viruses strike, does it affect the pollination ability or the, um, yeah, I guess does it affect the, the pollination ability? And, you know, so I know like early in the year in February, I guess a lot of bees go to pollinate almonds in Northern California. So with the timing of these certain viruses, again, is pollination affected or diminished or I don't know, is the effect of pollination changed when some of these bees are infected by various viruses? Right. So we don't have a very good answer to that. We know that um, bee viruses are certainly transmitted when bees are in a concentrated area foraging. But when we've looked at that in specific, we don't necessarily uh, see a spike in viruses associated with colonies in almond pollination, maybe shortly thereafter. As I mentioned, we've um, detected that there are some types of gene expression profiles that suggest like the energetics of the bee may be impacted. And so it may be that the bees are not as good uh, foragers when they're infected, but we really have no data to support that. So although an interesting thought, it's nothing that I've heard about. And oftentimes, you know, when bee boxes are placed in the almonds, they're really in close proximity to the tree trees that they need to pollinate. And so they don't even have to fly that far in that case. And so I think viral infected bees likely pollinate pretty well, unless, of course, they're bees that have an overt affection of deformed wing and then they can't fly and they'll quickly die post-emergence, or they have a virus infection to the extent that they have paralysis. And then, of course, they can't pollinate as well. Okay, so it's pretty significant how the bees are affected. So if they're affected, they wouldn't be able to pollinate at all, let's say, instead of do it in a way that's 
half-assed or I don't know, in some other yeah. unknown way where it's effective or not? I would say the majority of honeybees are harboring virus infections and that they can still pollinate. It's only a small fraction of the really impacted, very symptomatic bees. And again, that's a very small fraction that are so impacted by the viruses that they can't pollinate. But in general, every bee that we've sampled, and we've sampled thousands of different bees and quantified the virus prevalence, there's not many clean virus-free bees out there, and they're all still doing a great job pollinating. So I would actually kind of say the opposite of what you suggested. Oh, okay. Do bees seem to uh, have any medicine? that they use? Do they have any, I know it's probably a weird thing to say, but has it been observed that they have any knowledge of how to help themselves when they're sick or help others when they're sick? No, it's a very good question and a very interesting one. And so in one we're investigating actually, as well as others, there's a few things that come to mind here. And so bees collect tree resins or plant resins and they um, coat the inside of the cavity, whether that's a tree cavity or a, Langstroth hive where we keep managed bees with this uh, sticky resin plant resin called propolis and propolis it's been described as a propolis envelope by Dr. Marla Spivak's group primarily and Dr. Mike Simone Finstrom who uh, described this as a propolis envelope which you can imagine this kind of barrier is good for preventing you know spores from getting in Um, It's a sticky thing. So bacteria and fungal uh, cells may be impacted by this propolis envelope. Viruses are so small and it remains to be studied if propolis has any impact. That said, there's a few studies and we're doing these in my lab as well that look at do certain phytochemicals that bees may come in contact with as they forage, such as thymol from the plant thyme, for example, There's been some studies by Dr. J. Evans' group that indicate that certain amounts of thymol may be good for a colony, but they had varying results. Um, Finale Perek, a grad student in my lab, has been examining this in really controlled trials, and she has data to suggest that some different um, phytochemicals may stimulate the immune response to bees, and in turn, they may have less viral infections. Now, the question still remains to be seen, would they actively seek any of these phytochemicals or is it just by chance when the whole colony is foraging on a diverse array of floral resources, do they kind of have um, a plethora of these phytochemicals in the honey already? And is, is that important for immune response? We know that honey itself is, is better than, you know, sucrose syrup in terms of the bees' overall health and immune responses. Dr. May Berenbaum from the University of Illinois has looked at that, as well as many others. Um, so it's a, it's a really good question and an interesting one. And I think a lot of research is going in on that right now, including work in my lab. Okay. In terms of um, hindrance of the bees, you know, pollinating and producing honey and doing their job, which virus you know, out of any of them uh, is like the most impactful negatively. Right. That's hard to say. And as I mentioned, a lot of bees have um, test positive for many viruses and gather nectar and pollinate just fine. And so which is the worst virus for bees? Hard to say. We know again that deformed wing virus coupled with mite infestation in the fall is associated with colony losses. Um, and that Lake Sinai virus two has been associated with low population numbers, but an Israeli acute paralysis virus has also been shown um, either in individual bee experiments or uh, as well at the colony level to negatively impact bees quite severely. 
but it depends if the super, how impacted this individual is and the superorganism is, how many of these die due to that viral infection or how many of them are fine or, and, and clear that infection, have an adequate immune response such that they can do their job and the colony can survive and kind of get through that period of viral infection. The, uh, in particular, in varroa mites, do they have viruses that they carry? And are there instances where a bee will have a virus that protects it from varroa mite uh, problems? Has that ever been observed? Yeah, that's an interesting thought. And it brings up a couple important points. So varroa destructor mites can both passively transmit because they suck some of the bee blood or bee hemolymph or feed on the fat body of the bee and then they maybe bite another bee or feed on another bee. And in doing that, they can transfer just that fluid that's containing viruses from one bee to another. So they can act like a, a needle or syringe and transmit viruses. Some of the bee viruses actively replicate in the varroa mite. So it can be an amplifying host. And in that case, um, it could also be impacted by the virus negatively. Not a lot of work has been done on that. Another really important point this brings up, and we primarily study viruses that impact honeybees because honeybees are the primary pollinators of agricultural crops. So many of these viruses that I named, we consider them or they're referred to as honeybee viruses. But one really interesting thing about insect viruses is they are more promiscuous and less host-specific than, uh, than we think about with mammalian viruses. So many of these viruses can replicate in bumblebees, for example, or mining bees. When we think about bee virology, we need to think more about the pollinator or bee community and think about transmission within that community and not think of viruses as such a host-specific parasite. Oh, really? So if you don't think of them as host-specific, are you saying that because they seem to have similar action and able to move from, let's say, mites to bees and back and forth? Yeah, and I'm t saying, in, um, so there are over 20,000 species of bees, uh, hundreds of them in North America. And when we do studies, we just did a study in Israel with some collaborators there. When we sample multiple bee species, or actually bee taxa, so they're different genus as well, we can detect so-called honeybee viruses in multiple bee species. And those viruses are replicating, meaning that they, they have found a suitable host. They can replicate in that. Furthermore, honeybee viruses, or so-called honeybee viruses, also replicate in ants, um, another arthropod, and, and mites. You know? And so I think that we need to think about the viral landscape and transmission out in the wild of these viruses differently than we think about mammalian viruses. So for example... For another RNA virus that we might all be more familiar with as humans is the polio virus. It's a virus that can cause paralysis in humans. It's in the same broad category of these honeybee infecting viruses. Of course, we, the polio virus, we use mouse or mice as a model system for studying human immune systems a lot of times. And the mouse, it cannot be infected with the polio virus. Or I think we all recognize that our dogs and cats can get certain viruses and we don't get those viruses from them. So when we think about mammals, viruses are very host specific. I think when we think about arthropods and insects, we shouldn't think of them as so host specific like we do for mammalian hosts. Okay. Any other interactions with other creatures uh, on the regular? Do bees tend to, I mean, so bees interact unintentionally with varroa mites. But right. other creatures, they do intentionally interact with quite a bit. 
that affect them ants uh, other creatures yeah so it's interesting so in some areas and some beekeepers especially i think in texas have to wrestle with this more than we have to do worry about it in montana but ants can come in and actually they want to come in and eat the honey that the bees have. And so they just march right on up the uh, legs, uh, the support stand for the Langstroth colony, and they'll go in. And so then bees and ants would be interacting. Wasps also try to come in and wasps are carnivores. So they try to eat, come in and eat the developing bees. And so you'll sometimes see wasps trying to enter the colony. Another insect that enters the colony is this, it's called a wax moth. It goes in and actually lays its eggs and have its larva and feeds on the honeybee food stores. Not a lot of work has been done on these wax moths, but they're another insect that which the honeybee could interact with and viruses could be transmitted between that organism and the, that wax moth and a bee. Trying to think of any other organisms. Of course, skunks try to get in honeybee colonies and here in Montana, bears try to get in bee colonies, but I don't think that those two organisms would be in, impacted by the bee viruses. Interesting. Okay. What are you hoping to figure out in regards to the, uh, you know, to these viruses that affect bees over the next few years? Yeah, so our work is mainly geared at understanding the host or honeybee host evolved mechanisms. How do bees naturally combat viral infections? And the long-term goal of that research, if we can really identify and understand the mechanisms that bees have evolved to fend off viral infections, then we could work with bee breeders, for example, and there are bee breeders that might be interesting to your listeners. They select colonies based on honey production, gentleness, other desirable traits. And it may be that expression of a particular gene that we know is associated or a suite of genes is associated with better fighting off viral infections then we could work with bee breeders to have colonies that were more naturally resistant to honey bee viruses. And thus we'd have less overall losses that were attributed to viral infections. So one really cool thing we figured out recently, well, over the last few years in my lab is that the bee's immune response is stimulated by double-stranded RNA. And that's a molecule that viruses produce as they're replicating. And this double-stranded RNA molecule then can serve to stimulate a specific immune response called RNA interference in the bees. And that's a major antiviral defense mechanism. But in honeybees, also any piece of double-stranded RNA that you give them, we can give that to them via injection or feeding, seems to stimulate their immune response and in turn, viral abundance goes down. And so that's one of the major findings from my lab and others. Others have looked at this in bumblebees and it's true in those bees as well. Whereas it's not true in the fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster, which is the typical model organism or the model insect that most scientists use to study insect immunity as a whole. So that's a pretty cool finding that we've looked at the, a big difference between the model organism, the fruit fly, and the honeybee, and they have different immune responses to these viruses. So I think there's a lot to learn there, and that's one of the main areas of research in my lab right now. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about you and uh, to track what your lab is doing? Yeah, they can check us out at, the, at our website on Montana State University. We've also produced a series of YouTube videos that you can watch about honeybee viruses, virus detection, um, and things like that. I think those are the best ways. Via the web is a good way to find us. Okay, well, very good. Michelle, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day.
If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.